0: But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost? And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Peace. That's our theme with Advent this week. But it's a word sometimes, maybe, maybe you use it often, maybe you don't. But there's probably an image that comes to mind. And what, what is that image that comes to mind when you hear the word? Is it friendship? Is it good health, general welfare, wellness? Is it the stillness, things are calm? A lack of busyness, of not being distracted? Is it everything in order, everything has a place and it's in its place and where it's supposed to be? Is it enough to eat? The cupboard's full. Refrigerator's got food. Is it a, a healthy bank balance? So the ability to get up and go for a run in the morning and you get to three, four miles in, it's like, man, this is just so peaceful and I love it. And it's, oh Wait, that's probably me. As you drive towards me with a headlight, you're like, what is that? Peace can be a number of things and we know peace and we can experience peace in a number of different ways. But when we come to the Bible and we think of peace and what is peace, the word that often gets used is shalom. It's a Hebrew word. And it's a word for peace that has in view something of all of these, maybe not the running one, but all of those to an extent. But it's best expressed by the idea of being whole, of being complete. Perhaps we could say everything as it was created to be, as it was intended to be. And if we recognize and we receive that biblical understanding, then then we know that we live in a world that's lacking for peace because it doesn't take us long to look around over the course of any given day and something is, is not peaceful. And yet we come to this morning, we come to this morning with our minds drawn to peace As we walk through the Advent season, preparing for the celebration of the birth of our Savior, the Prince of Peace, one of the names that we call him, comes from Isaiah chapter 9. We know, we confess that we have perfect peace in Christ. Indeed, we talk about a peace that passes all understanding. Jesus himself said, My peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. John 14, 27. And yet in the midst of that, in knowing that, in confessing that, we, we know so little of peace in our days, don't we? Something doesn't go according, according to plan. Pick whatever it might have been over the last week, two weeks. Well, something doesn't go according to plan, and it throws the rest of the day or perhaps a significant period longer, Just throws it all off, doesn't it? Sleep doesn't come at night for any number of reasons. A disagreement at work or at home or somewhere else brings about a tension that persists. And, and you know, the next time I see that person or the next time I'm in that place, there's going to be this that's maybe not resolved. Or you just didn't like the wind the last week and it keeps blowing and you really wish it wouldn't. Because we want something of peace. And we continue to confess that in Christ we have peace and we hunger. We hunger for the day in which sin will be no more and perfect peace will be present. And it will persist. So as we come to our text today, we witness the Prince of Peace sending his disciples before him. They've just eaten. There's been this fabulous meal for 15,000 perhaps served, and everyone was filled to such a degree that there was 12 giant baskets of leftovers. And John has told us that they came and they wanted to force him to be king, and and he keeps that from happening, and he sends his disciples out. He sends his disciples before him, and he stays. says that he goes to pray. And to the disciples' credit, how often do we see the disciples when Jesus says, hey, do this, they do it. Sometimes they struggle with that, but it seems that they went. They went and they seek to be obedient to his his direction. And what do they encounter as they row? Not peace, but tumult, waves tossing to and fro. They continue to row at the oars and they're on the sea of Galilee. He's not with them. He's he's removed himself. He's going to come to them in one of the most famous scenes in the Gospel of Matthew or perhaps in all of the Gospels, if not all of the Bible, of him walking on the waves. And Peter's going to make a request to come to him on those waves. And he commands him, come. And Peter will do the impossible for nothing will be impossible with the Lord. And when you just think about it, where's he walking? How many of you have tried? You don't have to raise a hand. And there's a temptation with this, perhaps because it's so well known. There's a temptation with this passage to allegorize it. To allegorize this text to say something along the lines of, as Jesus came to the disciples in the midst of their storm, so he comes to us in our storms. Well, certainly that's true it is. And the Bible does draw general conclusions from God's past actions. Consider Exodus 14 when he leads the children of Israel through the Red Sea and later on Isaiah as he writes about the Lord's presence in Isaiah 43:2 he says when you pass through the waters I will be with you that's Exodus language. I will be with you. And here when you pass through the waters he comes through the waters he calls Peter out onto the waters and we have not just a this pointing to a past thing, but something very real taking place in present time. But we must fight the tendency to allegorize the story because an allegorical reading obscures the crucial fact that Matthew 14, 22 through 33 is a true, historical, real story. It's history. If Peter could stand before us today, he would tell you, this really happened. Jesus literally walks to the twelve on the water during a storm that splashes water on their faces, gets their clothes probably all wet, and it stops their boat for hours. Further, in an allegorical reading, it leaps too quickly from what Jesus does on the lake to what does Jesus do for me. It's a valid move, but it's secondary. Because what is Matthew concerned about? What does Matthew want readers to ask? What does he want us to know? What does he want us to ask? Who is this? Before they ask, what will he do for me? That order is important. Because if all we're concerned about is what someone will do for us, do we really care about who they are or anything along those lines? No, because who do we make it about? Me. So Matthew wants us to ask that question, who is this? Before we ask, what will he do for me? Because he will do things for you. But it's there we find the connection to the coming of our Savior into this world as a baby. We think about the nativity scene. Look in the manger. How many people look in the manger at a baby and go, what's he going to do for me? Well, the question is, who is this? Who will they be? Well, here we get a vision and we we, we get real truth about who he is, what he's done, what he's going to do. Peace is what he will do for you. And it's what all who are in Christ have. But in order to know that that peace will persist, Beyond this moment, the answer to the who is this question is of primary importance. And that's what's revealed as he walks on these waves, as he goes to his disciples. So we're going to look at this and we're going to try to see how, how he brings this in the midst of the tumult they find themselves in. Because if any of us would agree on anything, would we say that we live in generally a peaceful world or a tumultuous world, a chaotic world, a world with difficulty and struggle? And yet Christ comes. He continues to come. And so when we come into this, we see that immediately, one of those Mark words that Matthew borrows, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. He didn't, maybe didn't want them to get caught up in all the zeal to make him king, force him to be king. He puts him in the boat to go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And so they get in the boat. They're obedient. There seems to be no resistance to this direction. They get in and they go. And where does he go? says that he goes, after he's dismissed the crowds, up on the mountain by himself to pray. Do you remember why he had come to this place in in the first place? Look at the devotion of Christ. He came because likely he was wanting to mourn and he was going to pray and he discovered this crowd that was there and he's taking care of the crowd. And now notice the devotion and the focus of the Savior to say, I'm going to send these guys away and now I'm going to go pray. That's probably what he was going to do before. How many of us in the midst of the change and the difficulties and the things that come up during the day, I had plans that I was going to do this. I was going to spend time in prayer or in reading or what have you. Then the day went away and it just didn't happen. Here it didn't happen when he maybe wanted it to. And what did he do? He says, I'm not leaving this off. He goes, he withdraws, and he prays what he'd likely been desirous to do when they'd come here in the first place. But it's also an apt time to pray, isn't it? Because what had he just done? He just fed everyone, everyone that was present. And they didn't get it. They weren't comprehending. They wanted to make him king now, and that wasn't the plan. And so the crowds, they're uncomprehending. We've got religious leaders and political leaders that are hostile because Herod, he seeks to find him, but the last thing we know that Herod did that we've been told is that he killed his cousin. The religious leaders are already plotting a way that they can be rid of him. And the disciples, for the promise they show here, because they do confess him in this truly you are the son of God, we know that they're going to be slow to learn. They're still figuring things out. And so he removes himself to pray. Perhaps it involves some of that. Perhaps it involves just, as we mentioned last week, John's the forerunner. And he's just been killed as that part of his forerunning, his preparing the way for me. So he sends them out and he removes himself to pray. And they start rowing in evening time. And they'd rowed probably about three, four miles, they say, out, far enough that they'd been at it for a while. The boat was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night's likely between three and six a.m., and it would seem that We're probably closer to that 6 a.m. portion of it. So I, I don't know how many of you have been in a boat that you had to row. Or in a storm in a boat when you had to row. And the wind was against you and the waves were against you. And you just keep rowing and rowing. It's like sitting on the rowing machine at the gym. It's like, why am I doing this? I don't know. I'm not getting anywhere. Except they were actually in the sea and not getting anywhere. They'd gotten three, four miles, and it seems that they continued to strain at the oars. They're straining. And Matthew, in his, maybe frustrating to you, maybe refreshingly, maybe you get a chuckle out of it, Matthew's just matter of fact, isn't he? Yeah, they've been go. they're a long way from the land, they're beaten by the waves, the wind was against them, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Just natural as can be, right? Jesus, what are you going to do? I'm going to go for a three, four mile walk. Oh, okay. In the midst of what? The storm just blowing all over the place. And Matthew says, "And he came to them walking on the sea. Just as natural as can be. And we go, wait a second. He was walking on what? He's walking on the waves. And as he's walking on the waves, they see him. And it's interesting, where are the disciples right now? In the sea. But let's step back from that. They were in the place that he had sent them. Doing what he had sent them to do. It's taken longer than they anticipated, but they're still working at it. we've got some faithful obedience here, and they met resistance. And so they were where he was, where he'd sent them. And this probably didn't take him unawares. But it's interesting what they discover, what they say. So he's walking. And I mean, can you imagine? I mean, by this time, they're, they're probably 10 hours into this and they've been rowing. And how many of you, 10 hours of any like extreme physical exertion when you're fighting against, how many of you start to see things or think you see things? Like, Did I see what I just think I saw? And, well, they see something and they think what? It's a ghost. And he's making better time against the waves than they are because he's catching up to them. And the Bible affirms the existence of evil spirits, but not ghosts. That's one of the interesting things about the Bible. Yet it faithfully reports belief in ghosts. It was a common belief in that age. Uh, given that ghosts were construed in Greco-Roman culture as portents of impending doom, perhaps the disciples think death is coming, or something bad, if not death. And as they see this, they're they're afraid. And any of us, some of us like water, some of us don't like water, but if the water's against us, and in the Jewish conception, what they're on is, is the abyss you won't find Jews in Peter's day and Jesus's day saying let's go down for a great day at the beach and float in the water that that wasn't their thing because the abyss was the place of chaos it was the place of the dead in some regards it's the place that when you go back to the beginning of scripture it says there it was there was chaotic and the spirit hovered over the waters and it's order that God brings out of chaos in creation. So this wasn't a comfortable thing for them. They think it's a ghost, apparently. But notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't let them remain there. They said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. So they're fearful. They think it's a ghost. But there's that word again. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So Jesus doesn't allow them to persist in this situation in what? In their mistaken notions. Thoughts that this is a ghost. He doesn't leave them alone in fear or in their false assumption. Because he's coming to them. He wants them to be comforted and he corrects them. It's, it's, it's not, no, it's not a ghost. It is I. Once again, we see a situation in Scripture where God's people cry out. And the response is immediate. We go back to Exodus. The people cried out, God heard, God remembered, and God was doing something. And here, the response is received immediately following the cry. So the received response is there immediately. We need to recognize other times in Scripture, the response is immediate, but it's not realized immediately. Think Daniel. He set himself to pray. And once the messenger arrives, he says, the answer came when? As soon as you set yourself to pray, but it was 30 days. In this case, they cry out immediately. It's there. That's kind of what we want most of the time, right? If I cry out, just give it to me right away. Life will be good. In this case, that happens. A lot of times, that's not the case, is it? I want to see where this is going. And God says, I've got this. I know where it's going. I've given the answer. It's going to be unfolded before you, but not in the next minute. So he doesn't leave them alone. They cry out, and he gives them an answer. And that answer helps us answer that question at the beginning Who is this? Who is this? Notice the first thing take heart, fear not. What is that intended to do? If someone tells you to take heart, what do they want to do? They want to encourage you. They want to comfort you. They want to have you not be afraid. He's going to say that specifically after it is I. Take heart. Be of good courage. Then he says something interesting it is I. Now that translates this. Strange construction. Ego eimi is the Greek. And on one level, it's like saying, it is I, in response to someone who asks, who is it? Maybe you're at the door, and you're good friends, and the person on the other side of the door knows you well, they know your voice, and you say, it is I, and they're like, oh, it's so-and-so, and they open the door. It could be that. But it's also literally translated, I am, I am. Redundancy, I am, I am, is what it literally translates to. It's actually how the Lord's name, Yahweh, is translated in the Septuagint. Jesus says here as he walks to them on the waves, take heart, Yahweh, I am, I am. I am, who I, I am who I will be. He's saying, I am God. Now, do they make that connection? I don't know. They're in the midst of all this labor. But he says, I am. Mark, in his account, tells us that if, if you thought it was strange enough that Jesus comes walking to them, Mark tells us that his intent was to pass them by. Like, Good work you're doing there, boys. Keep it up. See you on the other side. Mark tells us that it was intention to pass them by, and what he alludes to there is the glory of God passing by. Passing by Moses in Exodus 34 in answer to Moses' request in Exodus 33. Because who is it that can walk on the face of the waters? Who is it that treads the deep but God himself? So there's an image of God's glory passing by. Psalm 77:19 19 says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And so they're getting a revelation of who this is by the very fact of what he's doing. It's revealing that he is God. What Matthew's wanted us to know, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And then he says, do not be afraid. Isn't that just always what happens when a messenger from God shows up? Hey, don't fear. And everybody's doing what? fearing. Because why? Because when you find yourself in the presence of an angel, you're what? Not like, oh, you're so cute and your wings are so fluffy. No, people are afraid. Because who is this? This is the messenger sent from God. It's interesting that that do not be afraid command, it appears eight times in Matthew. And each time it's linked to a promise of Jesus's Presence. It's what the angel says to Joseph. Don't be afraid. This one who's to be born is Jesus, is God's son. That presence should relieve the fear. And so Jesus, He shows up on this stormy sea, not laying in the boat as He was the last time there was a storm on the sea in a boat, but walking to them. And the disciples are afraid and they're tired. They cry out. And he said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then Peter. It's always Peter, isn't it? Hey, there's something that we just thought was a ghost on the sea. But he said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So he's made the connection. Well, I think that's the Lord. Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. Peter knows how water works. And people have a tendency to really just pick on Peter here in one of two directions. Peter is just plain old Peter where his mouth gets ahead of his brain. And then, you know, and, 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 and God allows it. I mean, look at this wonderful, like, this wonderful faithful statement call me to come out on the water. Other people take the Mickey out of Peter. For, for being, how could he ask God to prove himself in such a way? But who does that make the story about? It makes it about Peter, doesn't it? But who's the story really about? It's about the one who's walking on the waves. All of Scripture is about who? It's about Christ. There are characters that play significant parts, but make no mistake, it's about Christ. Peter's going to demonstrate something wonderful, but the story continues to be about Christ. Now, with Peter, you look at what Peter's request is. It's impossible, but it's a logical request. Because what has what Peter heard Jesus say? That a disciple imitates the teacher. What the teacher can do, the disciple can do. What does Peter want to do? That's that's Jesus. That's the guy I follow. I want to be like him. And so he makes this request. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus just says what? Come. He commands him. Come. Come. Peter gets out of the boat, and we're like, well, of course Peter gets out of the boat. Of course Peter gets out of the boat. Seriously. Stormy sea, professional fishermen, waves slapping all over the place, fighting against it. They don't like to get out of the boat, and Peter says, tell me to come, and he gets out of the boat. Now you've got these storms that are tossing the boat back and forth. And this boat, which was designed to go probably catch fish, it's not just like simply standing up out of your chair and stepping into the water. There's probably a good eight to ten foot drop onto the water. So it's not just a, oh yeah, it's more like a, all right, (laughs) and make you jump. So Peter gets out of the boat. It's interesting. It's interesting that the two times we see Peter jumping into the water in the Gospels, who was it that he was going to? Jesus. He does it here, and he does it at the end of John. I just think that's really interesting. That the two times that we see the fisherman actually getting out of the boat it's to go to his Savior. And we pointed the fact that this was no invitation. It was a command. Peter said, command me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. That's command language. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. And again, Matthew, just like he said, Jesus walked to them on the water. He relates this very matter of fact, doesn't he? Peter got out of the boat and he walked to Jesus. So where is Peter right now? With Jesus. Because he walked where? He walked to Jesus. And what is there no mention of as Peter traverses the waves to Jesus? There's nothing spoken of, of fear. When does Peter become terrified? Who's he right next to? Who's he in the presence of? He's right there next to Jesus. I mean, that's just as plain as the text unfolds it. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. There he is. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And begins to, beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And once again, how do we know that he's at Jesus' side? Because how does Jesus save Peter? It doesn't say he walked to him. It says immediately he did what? He reached out his hand. So Peter's where? Right next to him. I thought that was strange. I hadn't noticed that before. Probably you did, but I'm slow. Peter becomes terrified when he's standing next to Jesus. His eyes were fixed upon Jesus the whole way. And once he's beside him, his eyes start to drift once he's there they drift he's where's he standing on the water next to jesus in response to his command and paul later on i don't know that he had this in that he had in his mind but he writes in 1 corinthians 10 12 and 13 therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall no temptation has overtaken you It's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here's Peter standing on the waves next to Jesus, and he starts to notice what? What's the temptation? He's walked out to Jesus. He's by him like, wow, that was really neat. And now as he's standing there with Jesus, looking at the sea, surveying everything that's going on, he starts to feel that water dripping on his face maybe. Because it tells us it's at that point he noticed what? He saw the wind. He saw its effect. He was afraid. His fear came in there. And that's where he becomes fearful again. He was fearful in the boat. seems that he wasn't as he's walking towards Jesus. And then he's fearful when he gets next to him because his eyes start to drift. And he notices the wind and the waves and all these things. And then maybe he's like, wait a second, where am I? staying What? starts to sink. And now he cries out for the second time. Lord, save me! And once again, what do we see? An immediate response. Have any of you ever been thrown out of a boat? Like, non-voluntarily? There's a little stretch of the Arkansas River. It's got great rapids. Highly encouraged if you get the chance. They have great rapids called Widowmaker, Slidell Suckhole, and people raft through here all the time, but it's not the safest place to raft. It's a heck of a lot of fun. And at one point, I found myself going down and raft. One of my groomsmen across the boat from me And we got to one of these, and I don't know where we were, but you hit a bump in one of these, and all of a sudden, he comes flying across me. And the last thing I remember is his face and my face, and all of a sudden, in the water. And when you're in the water, you're not thinking, well, you want to get back in the boat. But in this kind of water, you're not thinking, I can get back in the boat, because you can't get back in the boat. You're thinking, get your feet downstream so you don't whack your head and die. And I hope someone reaches over the edge. Thankfully, and the fact that I'm standing here, they did. They reached over, grabbed my, and I had nothing to do with it. They grabbed the shoulders on the life jacket, yanked back in, and now we're better. Peter's in stormy, tumultuous water. There's a good chance Peter's been in water in a boat before. And it's possible that someone's been tossed out into the water. And Peter's had to put a hand out as there's a hand now stretched out to him to pull him back into the boat because they can't get back in. But do you notice the difference here? Where's the one who extends the hand? Standing on the water not in the boat reaching out to try to grab him right there next to him so that when he says lord save me it's as simple as here i'm gonna put you back in the spot you were at before you started to look away where do you think peter's eyes went immediately when he started to sink and write to him, Lord, save me. And he did. Right next to him, in the stormy water, the one he calls out to, who is this? This is the Ark of Deliverance. Go back to Genesis 6 through 8, that ark that kept Noah and all of them safe on the tumultuous waters. Here's the one it points forward to, the one who saves from chaos. Who saves from disorder, the one who brings peace, the one the ark pointed forward to is the one who reached out, grabbed Peter's hand, lifted him up, and set him there and when he got him up next to him, notice what Peter does, or notice what Jesus does, Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, "Oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Not how dare you have so little faith? Not even how dare you doubt, but rather." Why did you doubt? He doesn't say he has no faith. He says you have little faith. Because he had faith. Because he cried out. Who did he cry out to? Lord, save me. That reveals a faith. And Jesus has lots of stories talking about what a little bit of faith can do. Faith in him, that is. Jesus asked Peter why he doubted before he and Peter re-enter the boat. Notice that as well. Because Jesus reaches out, pulls him up, saying to him, Oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? And then, what did they do? They walked back to the boat. They walked back to the boat. But Jesus asked Peter why he doubted before he and Peter re entered the boat, as if to hint that he could see the solution to the problem before it arrived. He had little faith, but a little would be enough if it rests on Jesus. He picks him up. Sets him back on those waves that he was standing on before and they walk back. And they get to the boat. They get back to the boat and they got into the boat and what happened to the wind? It's gone. You notice the difference between this time and the last time? The last time he was asleep and he got up and he told the wind to be quiet. Peace, be still, right? Here, he just gets in the boat and what happens? He didn't say a word. Pieces come into this boat. Notice that the boat, is still on the water. Mark tells us immediately they came to the place that they, would, that they were going. But that peace comes just like that. And so they're back in the boat. The wind ceased. Not a word was said. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This was not the case last time. Peace has come. They're starting to understand. They're growing. The last time that this happened where he was in the boat and told the wind and the waves to be quiet, they marveled with the implication being that there was greater fear now in the boat than there was before. But now that's not the case. He gets in the boat, and what did they do? They worshipped him. If you had a picture of their position when he said to the winds, the first, wind and the waves the first time, peace, be still, perhaps you're like, what manner of man is this? But now he steps into the boat with Peter, and what do they do? They fall toward him, and they worship him. And they also confess. You're back in the boat, and what do they say? After all of these stories where we've had people not understanding or rejecting or missing it, what do they say? Truly, you are the Son of God. Remember what the first question was back in Matthew chapter 8? They marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds in the sea obey him? Here, that's not on their lips. Truly, you are the Son of God. And they worship. Have you said that? Have you witnessed that? Because notice, and we can't miss it, Peter, he has his moment of looking. He's gotten to Jesus' side, and he starts to look away, and he starts to sink. Jesus gets him. He says, Lord, save me. Jesus pulls him back up, and they walk back to the boat through what? Through the continuing storm. And then they get into the boat. So Peter was present with Christ, this one who truly is the Son of God. Walking on the waves with him back into that boat, and peace comes. And that peace is known by all of those that are in the boat, not just by Peter, by all of them. And what took place with Peter wasn't just for Peter, it was also for them. They witnessed it. But that's to keep our eyes on the main character, on Jesus. When you're thinking about peace and what he brings. Jesus, in this story, he sent them away. He goes up to pray on the mountain. When does he come to them? He comes at the right time. You might say they might have thought the right time was earlier. Well, that's, all of us are guilty of that, right? Jesus, the right time would have been like six hours ago, if I'm going to be real honest. But Jesus came to them at the right time. And when we consider the fact that we're in the season of Advent and we're preparing to celebrate the coming of Christ, his taking on flesh the first time, Scripture tells us that he came to earth at the right time. He came at the right time to establish what? Peace. To offer peace whosoever will come. But Galatians 4, 4, and 5 tells us that at the right time, in the fullness of time, Christ came. He was born of a woman. And so, as Christ went out to them at the right time, so when we look, consider his birth, he came to earth at the right time. And as he came to earth at the right time, he also died at the right time. And we look forward to his second coming, which no surprise to us should be known that it will happen at the right time. But Jesus, as he goes, we see that he did this. He walked the chaos of the abyss, the tumult of the storm, waves rocking, wind blowing, probably soaked to the bone. He walked the chaos of the abyss as the one who has power over it, the one who tramples the waves. The one who exercises power over it. Just as he exercised power over five loaves and a couple of small fish to multiply them to feed to complete satisfaction with leftovers. So here he walks over the water that he created to go to those who are his. He walked the chaos of the world as the one who has the power to redeem it. He comes into this world that he made for all things were made through him. All things that were made to be peaceful with him. And that peace had been rejected. But God said, I'm not going to cast this all off and start something new. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to reconcile it. I'm going to bring peace to it. And this is how. And here he comes. He walked the chaos of the world as the one who has the power to redeem it. And he would do so on the cross. But he also did something here as well. He delivered his disciples, from those waves. And as he delivered those disciples from those waves, which were threatening waves, so he delivers his disciples, continues to deliver his disciples from the waves of death into the presence of his peace. Because he's defeated that enemy, that enemy of death. And in Romans 5, we read the truth of what he's given to whoever's in him. Romans 5, it says, therefore, since we, those who have trusted in Christ, have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for us through whom we have now received reconciliation, peace with God. He delivers his disciples from the waves of death into the presence of his peace. Peace. What image comes to mind? If it's dependent upon a situation or an ability that you have that God gave you or to do something or someone outside of Christ. If that's your image of peace, it will always result in an absence of peace because at some point the situation will change because situations are always changing. If it's an ability to do something, all of us know the onset of time Our ability to do something isn't always going to be as great as it could, and it'll change. And a peace resting on an ability to do something that changes, it'll change. If it's on something or someone out of Christ, they're going to change. But peace founded on Christ, on the one who never changes, is a peace. It never changes. Our understanding of it will change. It'll grow. And sometimes it grows in ways that are uncomfortable for us, but it grows because of the unchanging one who it rests upon. Because our peace is not found in what Christ gives. That's to love the gift more than the giver. Our peace is not found in what Christ gives. It's found in Christ himself. Our peace is a person. The incarnate living son of God who, yes, came as a baby into this world. The one that Simeon declared as his parents brought him to the temple, declared upon his arrival. Well, he's still in those swaddling cloths. In Luke 2, 29 and 30, says, Lord, now you are letting your servant, letting your servant depart in Peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What is salvation other than peace with God through Christ? That's who this is. Who is this? He's the Savior who would succeed in his mission and bring peace with God to fallen men. He is the Prince of Peace. In this fallen world as we walk in this day and in the days that he gives our experience of peace our experience of peace will be incomplete but our possession of peace can be and is constant in Christ It's never changing like he is who like he who is the same yesterday today and forever Peter was walking and standing with Christ in the midst of the howling wind and the harassing waves, and yet peace was present. Because peace was what? It it wasn't the ceasing of the wind even. It was the one he was with. It was Christ. Peter was walking and standing with him in the midst of that howling wind and harassing waves, and peace was present. It was when he was next to Christ that he doubted. And that reminds us we never outgrow or outlast our need to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ. And by the grace of God and the presence of his spirit, that's where he trains our eyes. Trusting and finding our peace in him. Matthew's message is not Peter failed. Don't be like Peter. The passage teaches that Peter's failure, hold on to this. Peter's failure did not bring catastrophe because Jesus did not fail Peter right next to him. Peter calls out. He took his eyes off Jesus, but Jesus never took his eyes off Peter and he lifted him back up. As we fix our eyes upon Christ who came as a child, let us rejoice that he has never taken his eyes off us. His father has never taken his eyes off us. That's why he sent him. Ask that our eyes wouldn't be distracted from this one because we live in a world that wants to distract the eyes. Ask that our eyes wouldn't be distracted from this one who has come to save us, who has saved us, and will save whosoever will come to him. And yes, the one who's coming again and the one in whom we have surpassing peace. He stands next to you and to us in the waves. Cry out to him today. And every day.